and welcome to the alternate timeline. Um, I'm sorry that this bonus podcast is a little bit later than it usually is. Um, I think I've mentioned on a couple of other episodes of the bonus podcasts um, that I'm a little bit frazzled right now. Um, I have two big projects outside of Flash Forward that are wrapping up in the next couple of months, plus making Flash Forward, plus trying to do book promo, plus like just the general state of the world. Um, And I can sort of feel myself careening towards burnout um, and I sort of see it coming and I do have a plan. Um, I'm going to try and take off a little bit of time at the end of June. Um, But yeah, so that's just kind of like where I'm at and why these are a little late um, for the past couple weeks. Um, But these bonus podcasts will obviously keep happening. Um, They are a thing that are part of your rewards and I do like doing them. Um, They just sometimes might be a little later than usual. Um, So today we are talking about stuff from the Smart Cities episode. And I mentioned this in the episode, um, which is that I kind of have avoided this topic for many years now. Um, And I I mentioned in the episode, it's partially because there is just so much like hype around the Smart City. And I wasn't quite sure what I could say about it that would be new or surprising to you. You know, I I often try to avoid topics that I feel like you all probably just know a lot about already, and there's not that much I can say that's going to surprise you. Um, There are obviously some basic upgrades that cities can make to make use technology to make their cities better, and some of them are good, some of them don't work that well, whatever. Um, But I do, I get a ton of pitches and press releases in my inbox that hype up smart city projects. So it's hard for me not to kind of feel just like annoyed by the topic. Um, Because, you know, it's partially because each of these pitches really has like the same tone, which is this idea that technology alone can quote unquote fix everything that is wrong with the city. Um, And obviously, you know, that's not true. Um, I get a lot of pitches for things like how technology can quote unquote solve homelessness or, you know, all these things that just it's sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of the problem. Um, and tech companies are often the ones who are making cities actively worse. I live in the Bay Area, um, and so I sort of have seen firsthand the very obvious ways that that happens. Um, and so I really wanted this episode not to focus on any specific technology that might be contained within these projects. Um, so that's why we didn't get into explaining like how the streetlights work or garbage collection data projects or anything like that. I really just wanted to talk about the bigger picture question of what a quote unquote smart city truly is. Um, So that's kind of the like general ethos of the episode and why I structured it the way that I did without going into detail on any particular smart city project. Um, So one thing that I actually cut from the episode is a sort of definitional question. Um, You know, we talked about what smart means in the context of cities, but what we didn't talk about is what city means. Um, Like what actually counts as a city? Uh, And it turns out that this is a harder question to answer than you might expect. So here is Annalie Newitz, who you heard on the episode. This is their answer to that question when I asked them. Yeah, so that's a huge question. Um, And there are a number of competing explanations for, sorry, there are a number of competing definitions of cities. Oftentimes in the West, archaeologists call on a definition from uh, an anthropologist, V. Gordon Child, who was writing in the early 20th century. And he's the guy who invented the phrase Neolithic revolution, um, which you may have heard if you're a giant uh, anthropology nerd. Um, He was really influenced by Marxist thinking, and so he was super interested in cities as 
engines of economic productivity. And so the reason why he used this phrase Neolithic revolution, which kind of fits in with where cities begin, is because he was thinking of the Industrial Revolution. And so he kind of casts the history of cities as leading up to the Industrial Revolution. And so he imagined that the history of cities involved a series of kind of technical revolutions and financial revolutions. So his definition uh, involves thinking about whether an area is high density. So what? So for him, a city has to be high density. It has to have social hierarchy. It has to have taxation, money, writing, monumental architecture, and a, a, a set, several other things. Um, there have been a lot of archaeologists since then who've questioned this idea, particularly because we have so many great examples of places that were clearly high density, clearly incredibly productive in terms of um, you know, artisanship and technologies around like ceramic making or Stone Age technologies, um, but they didn't leave any writing behind or they didn't have money uh, or we can't, f they didn't have monumental architecture. So I'm using a definition in this book which really just relies on the idea that a city is just the most high density settlement of its time. So the first city in the book, which is one of those places that's debated um, whether it's a city or not, Çatalhöyük in central Turkey, had maybe about 5,000, 10,000 people living there, so not big, but it was very high density. Uh, everyone's houses were literally stuck together. Uh, they were built kind of like an apartment complex. and they were producing a lot of art, no writing that we know of, um, and they had very sophisticated um, artisanship and technologies around ceramics. So to me, that counts as a city because everybody else living around it was living in groups of like 100 people or something. So to people living nomadically with 100 people coming to a place that was sedentary, where people lived year round and there were 5,000 people would have seemed nuts, like it would have been a metropolis to them. So I think it's really useful to look at cities in their context. You can't really understand what a city is unless you know how other people are living. Because now, of course, 5,000 people to us would be like a backwater. One of the other really interesting things that I talked to Annalie about is how archaeologists actually figure anything out when it comes to ancient cities. Katalhoyuk did not have writing yet, so there are no like documents to read from, to know how they thought about the city, how the city worked. Uh, was there like a mayor or a ruler or a singular person? Was there a powerful family? We like don't really know. Um, and like, how did people decide where to live within the city? We just don't know a ton. And um, archaeologists actually have to kind of like make these inferences from all sorts of clues. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of gets to the heart of um, what's difficult about archaeology. And it's one of the things that makes archaeologists often say that they're not scientists, that they're in the humanities, because a lot of the work of archaeology is imaginative work. It's finding hard evidence, but then extrapolating from that evidence. So for example, um, you might find uh, a skeleton buried under the floor in a house, and um, you know, if you're coming at this scene from your modern day perspective, I think the first thing that an archaeologist might do is say, oh my God, there's been a murder and there's been a body hidden under the floor. Um, but 
here's where the kind of science and data part comes in, which is that now most archaeologists believe in what's called contextual archaeology. So you don't just say, I found a house with a skeleton in the floor. Obviously, it was a murder because that's what it would be in my time. Um, you say, oh, well, what's going on in all the houses around that house? Uh, and then you find out, oh, there's a skeleton buried in the floor of the house next door and the house next door to that. And oh, my gosh, every freaking house has a goddamn skeleton in the floor. So obviously there's something going on that's not murder. Um, so then the question becomes, well, why are people doing this? And this is a real question at Chitalhoyuk, where the archaeologists excavating there discovered that people bury their dead under the floor. So then you start asking questions like, can we sequence the DNA from these skeletons? Can we figure out if these are family groups? Can we um, trace where these skeletons have been? Can we um, extrapolate something from where they are in the house? Like, are certain people buried in certain places? Um, is Are other things buried in the floor? How does that add up to our understanding? And so at Chitalhoyuk, for example, we find that actually lots of things are buried in the floor. People bury different kinds of ritual items. Um, they bury specific kinds of animal bones from dangerous animals. They bury um, jewelry. They bury beloved items, like things that have clearly been carried around with them, like figurines or um, little symbolic tablets. Um, and so we know that because of that, these people have a practice of burying things that they care about under their homes. So then we can start to say, all right, well, so they're burying these skeletons under their homes because they care about them and there's something about them that's important. But what is it? Is it, that, is it a spiritual importance? Is it like historical memory? Are they trying to preserve their connection to an ancestor? Like, what does it mean? And so that's where the imaginative stuff comes in. And that's where archaeologists um, share territory with anthropologists and they try to look to modern day people who maybe have practices that resemble practices at these uh, sites and say, OK, well, modern day people who preserve skeletal remains do it because of ancestor worship or they do it because it's a beloved ancestor. Maybe they don't worship them, but they they love them and they want to, you know, they want to have their skull around. Um, so that's kind of how it's done. It's partly this contextual um, excavation, like trying to look at the objects that you find without preconceptions before you kind of see the whole context of the site, whatever that site is, if it's a house or a city or uh, a cave. Um, but then there's the part where you have to very, very carefully try to compare your ancient people to modern people and say, well, you know, in modern cities, we have a lot of problems with sewage. Um, did they have that problem in ancient Rome? Oh, turns out they did. And, you know, in ancient Rome, of course, we have all these written records of people being really mad about urine and shit and all kinds of stuff. They actually had a urine tax because um, Romans would collect urine to use um, for processing wool. So there, there was taxation on when you dumped your piss into the big um, bowl of piss at the street corner. <laughs> so it uh, wasn't as you do. And I, and, and like, it's those moments actually, when you, you realize how different these civilizations were, like the idea of walking through a city where people are dumping their urine into giant jars at every street corner. Um, you know, that's not a, 
like a modern city. At least it's not like a modern American city where I where I'm familiar with urban um, behavior. So um, so it's always this process of extrapolating and checking yourself and remembering that these ancient people actually lived really, really differently and had a whole different set of beliefs and a whole different set of expectations than we do. But they also shared some basic stuff with us, like caring about whether their walls are crumbling and decorating their walls. Like, turns out for 9,000 years, people have been using wallpaper, basically. Um, Always loved it. We've always loved painting shit on our walls. It's just apparently a human thing. So... Yeah, it's really it's it's actually extremely difficult. And this is one of the reasons why every generation of archaeologists kind of corrects the previous generation, because we're always learning new stuff and we're learning new stuff from new data, but also from new ways of understanding civilizations and and understanding that not all civilizations are the same. And, um, you know, the more we understand that, the better able we are to understand history. I said this in the episode, but I want to say it again here, which is that I really, really enjoyed Annalie's book, Four Lost Cities. Um, It genuinely did make me think about cities differently, uh, and it's full of super interesting stuff. So I highly recommend checking it out if you have not already. Um, Okay, speaking of books, this episode is the topic of the first chapter of the book. Um, You heard about the comic, which is about a millennial visiting her son in this sort of futuristic high-tech city. Um, In the comic, the city works really well for some people, but not for other people. Um, And in the chapter that follows, sort of written chapter that follows, I write about everything from futurist painters to the historical debate around when exactly the idea of privacy actually started. Um, I do hope you check out the book and you read it, and I hope that you enjoy it. Um, Another thing that we talked about on this episode is access and accessibility, um, which is often overlooked in all city planning, not just smart city planning. Um, And one thing that we didn't really talk about on the episode when we talked about that is the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, I think a lot of people have this idea that the ADA ensures that disabled folks do have access to things like buildings. Um, But that's like not totally true. Um, So here is Jara Mesh talking about what accessibility even means in the context of urban design. Yes. So, um, I mean, I guess first we have to start with the idea of access itself, right? Like, what is access? Um, What does that mean to be some for something to be accessible? Well, access is not about special needs. It's not about special accommodations. People access things differently, but it's that's there's nothing special about it, right? Like, let's make things really explicit. Stairs are also an accommodation, just as much as a ramp or an elevator. Um, So designers and architects are basically making the decision about whose bodies are being valued. And that's a lot of what the ADA does. Um, The ADA codifies very specific um, instances. Um, It has specificity for heights and lengths and widths and measurements that are based on particular bodies. Um, And Basically, what it's for is like to point. You can say, "Here, this is this particular spot in the code," and say, "Here, this is how we should build or design this thing," um, and we do it in this particular way. But that's really just the beginning, right? It's the starting point for ensuring that various types of bodies can physically access that particular point. Um, but that's actually starting too late. And so, um, 
I think really the ADA puts us in this very particular, like concretized spot. But what really matters is how we actually practice life between those moments of access, right? Um, so even though the ADA is formulating these policies for individual components, um, so like an accessible bathroom, an accessible parking space, um, you know, elevator or ramp, it doesn't look at the structural issues of living with an illness or living with a disability, which is actually the result, you know, that results in the lack of actual access. And so that's why the ADA is important to a point, right? It enables a certain particular um, focus that nobody's going to do unless they're forced to do it, right? Um, and so it's a way of enforcing, although as we know, that's not, you know, there are so many exceptions that, um, you know, if you if you were on a, if you're on a college campus, for example, like the one that I used to be on, or even potentially the one I'm on now, although I haven't been there much because of the pandemic, um, the the buildings are so old that they have that they're retrofitted in particular ways. So if you know if the entrance ramp to the building is in the back, you know, down through the parking lot next to the dumpster, that's very different than walking in the front door. Um, and so those are the kinds of questions. Also, you know, what is what does access mean, and what does access going through a back entrance in a parking lot mean for a white disabled person versus a black disabled person? Um, so you have to take the histories and the specificities of different people in within those intersections, right? And so those are the big questions that we have to ask when we're thinking about cities. So the last thing I want to play for you that I cut from the episode is just kind of a longer cut of what Jathan said about holding technology companies to higher standards, because I think that he just puts it really well and says a lot of the things that I've been thinking about but haven't really been able to articulate. So here is Jathan Sadowski. We can think about how do we democratize technology? How do we actually make something like the smart city uh, socially beneficial in really serious ways by going back to that question of hype and actually just like making these companies live up to their own promises, right? So it's like, you know, the the smart city as this kind of concept is is sold in a way that is meant to be very attractive. And you, you really can't blame the intended targets of this sales pitch for going along with this narrative, right? Whether it's uh, city planners who who do need help managing complex systems more effectively, um, politicians who are under this pressure to keep performance high, to keep growth on this like infinite upward trajectory while also doing austerity, right? Like, or or, or the public who truly does want to live in a city that serves their needs. Uh, I think we could do a lot by simply applying pressure and being like, are your promises and are your prototypes actually living up to the hype that you've been selling us? I, I you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, we see over and over and over again how no they're not actually living up to that hype uh, because it was all meant to be hype to begin with, uh, and and so rather than just kind of like. Uh, in a you know in a in a dejected way, being like, oh well, okay, it it didn't come this time, but maybe next time it'll come. Uh, I think we need to have. It doesn't mean settling for less, which is very much what. Um, these these companies uh, want us to do is they want us to settle for less. It means demanding more and it means expecting that they actually live up to their promises. And if they don't, then then okay, like get out of the room, right? Like someone else can do that better than you clearly because you're not succeeding. 
Okay, that is all the stuff that uh, I would have included if the show was two hours long, <laughs> um, but we didn't have time. So I hope that you enjoyed that. So other than that, uh, other than this episode, um, I have just been doing a ton of book promo stuff. Um, I linked to a bunch of it in the newsletter this week, but I will also link to it in the show notes of this episode. Um, you could catch me on Science Friday, uh, KQED. I wrote something for Slate. I did a couple bookshop events, other odds and ends. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff online. Um, I will again link to those in the show notes if you want to see those. Um, if you haven't left a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads yet, um, and if you liked the book and you're going to leave a nice review, it would be awesome if you could review the book. Um, that'd be really great. Those reviews really help. Um, I will also link in the show notes for this podcast, uh, how to get a book plate, the little form to fill out. I sent the first round of those out uh, a couple days ago, or I guess a week ago now. And then also I will link to how to download the zoom backgrounds that I made one for each of the chapters in the book. Um, and so if you miss those in the newsletter or whatever, uh, I will link to those in the show notes for this as well. Okay. I think that's everything that I have for you on that front. And then at the end, a little secret, um, and that is that one of my goals this year um, is to finish a draft of a novel that I have sort of been like puttering away at for a while now, um, and I've been working on it for a couple of years, but like very slowly. And then this year I finally like tried to get my act together and start writing it. Um, and I've been doing a bunch of work on it and I have this really great writing club with two other people that we meet every Sunday and it's been really amazing and they've been super helpful. So I have sort of a plot outline. I have all my characters sort of figured out and I'm going to go through and rewrite the stuff that I've already written to kind of make it make sense with the sort of now big gist and then hopefully write through to the end. And my hope is to get a draft finished by the end of the year. That's my hope. Um, I hope my agent is not listening to this <laughs> because who knows if that's going to happen, but that's my goal. Once all these other big projects that I've sort of mentioned are done, my hope is that I can um, focus on this and flash forward and that those are my two things. Those will be my two things. Okay. That's it for me for today. Um, I hope you are all having an incredible weekend, and um, I will talk to you all soon. Okay, bye.